How often do you think about the second coming of Christ? It's probably less than you should, and this is probably a, something that many churches face, many Christians face, myself included, because this critical doctrine of the faith, part of what we call orthodoxy, either gets sensationalized with respect to current events or politics, or just completely passed over for the sake of other more seemingly relevant topics like marriage or parenting or you know, anxiety management. But the second coming of Christ dominated the mind of the Apostle Peter and the early church. And Peter's focus on the second coming only increases as his death nears. He knows that he is about to die. And so our lack of attention to the final judgment reveals something about us. It reveals a distorted vision of our place within history. It, view, it reveals a distorted vision of our mortality in many ways. And our lack of attention to the final judgment also shows that we primarily think about the gospel and about Christianity as God entering into our story. We didn't know him, and now we do. And that's true, and that's good, and should be celebrated. But that's not the emphasis of the New Testament. The New Testament frames the Christian life in terms of us getting into the story of Christ, of seeing our own lives as part of a larger narrative that encompasses all of creation. When we reframe our perspective in light of God's glory, in, in light of the story that he's telling on the stage of history, on the, in the theater of history, we realize to a greater degree our absolute dependence upon his mercy, that we really are creatures, that, that all of creation is not about us. It's about him. And when it's about him, we actually recognize our rightful place in the world. And that gives us a mooring for our souls. It gives us an anchor to understand who we are and what we're here for. But fixing our eyes on the second coming does not lead to passivity but rather diligent effort toward holiness. So the second coming for us, just as it was for Peter's audience in the first century, spurs us on toward love and good deeds as we await the kingdom of righteousness, which God promises to those who love him. This is Understanding Second Peter. Peter finishes his final letter by shutting down the false teachers of the church who deny the return of Christ. And he begins by citing Old Testament passages that refute the teaching of the false teachers. So let's look at the first seven verses of chapter 3. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So Peter summarizes the intent of his second letter. He wants to remind the church of the truth that lies with the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of Christ through his apostles. And that's over and against the false teachers who deny the return of Christ. So, so the doctrine of the final judgment is in accord with the Old Testament prophetic word by the prophets and those who wrote the Old Testament scriptures and with the very commands of Christ, which we have through his designated representatives, his spokesmen, 
the apostles. The prophets foretold that final judgment, and Christ through his apostles confirms that reality in their teaching and their writing. And the false teachers scoff at this testimony and point to history's apparent lack of divine intervention since the days of their fathers, which I think is a reference to the patriarchs of Israel. They're looking at history and saying, it's just one thing after another. It's monotonous. It's, it's, there's no uh, rhyme or reason to it. It's just things are happening and happening and happening and happening. And that's just the way it's been. So why should we expect this cataclysmic judgment of God that doesn't seem to accord with our understanding of how the world works? And Peter says, well, this heretical claim conveniently overlooks three key facts. First, creation itself owes its beginning to divine intervention. God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing, which means nothing in creation rivals God. It also means that the very beginning of creation was divine intervention. There was a change in the state of affairs. The earth began as a watery and formless void, we learn in Genesis 1, that God created. And then he shapes that with the word of his own mouth, where, where he actually speaks into being, dividing the water and, and, and creating uh, the vault of the sky in between, and then, and then removing the water so that land emerges. You can see God shaping the world, shaping creation with his very word. So it's through water and the word that creation comes into being. And that leads to the second rebuttal, where he says that God himself flooded the world in response to humanity's sin. The waters of creation become the waters of judgment, again, by the word of God. And that's another divine intervention. And in this case, it is a radical judgment. People are eating and drinking and enjoying their life while God promises the flood. And the flood comes and the entire old world is destroyed. Right? They were the same people. They were the people who had the same attitude as these false teachers. Nothing's going to happen. We're going to be fine. And then, boom, God's, God's judgment comes in and he does it through his Word And this leads, leads to, the, to the third rebuttal to the false teachers, that that very same God, by his very same word, will bring judgment, not by water this time, because remember, God promised he would not flood the earth again, but rather through fire. Peter rebukes the false teachers for overlooking the fact of God's final judgment. And so just as God changed the state of affairs by bringing into existence all of creation from nothing, and just as he brought the flood of judgment on an unsuspecting generation who were ignorant and who did not listen to his word, so will God end this order of creation by fire in the final judgment. And so he says they're overlooking this really important fact. But then he looks at the church, to the beloved, and he says, you guys also, I don't want you to overlook this fact, that the apparent delay of Christ's return, which is prompting some people to deny his return, is actually an expression of God's kindness. This is verses 8 to 10 in chapter 3. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now, Peter's not giving us a human-to-God time conversion chart, as if one day in heaven time equals 1,000 uh, you know, earth years. It's not a conversion chart, but rather Peter wants us to know that God never sleeps at the wheel. What seems like a delay from our perspective is God working out his good providential plan at the right 
time. So he's contrasting God's eternal purposes with our temporal kind of frustrations, that, that, that the way that we kind of gauge God's progress in the world uh, is, is a very finite, limited perspective. And we need to humble ourselves and recognize that God knows what he's doing. In fact, some of the early church fathers exhorted their congregations to pray for the delay of the second coming for this reason. They wanted to give more time for their pagan friends to convert. And Peter goes down this path where he says, what if God's kindness is manifested in this apparent delay? What if God hasn't returned now because there are more people he wants to repent? In other words, what begins as a sign of maybe God's not faithful, maybe he's not going to return, is actually a sign of his faithfulness, of his kindness, of his mercy, that, that he is allowing more and more people to repent, that every day we get is a gift and another opportunity for us to turn from our sin and to turn toward Christ. So he has kindness to your unbelieving neighbors, your unbelieving family members and co-workers, that they might come to Christ because he hasn't returned yet. Our job is not to judge God for his timeline, but rather to be ready when he returns. And he's going to return like a thief and all the heavens will pass away. The, the heavenly bodies, or rather the elements of this creation, will receive judgment and purification through fire. And God himself is described as a consuming fire in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29. Fire burns away impurities and leaves the gold intact. Fire is something that distinguishes, it reveals, it exposes, it burns away the dross and leaves what is of true value. And that's a vision of God's judgment. God will, through fire, purify the earth and reveal the works of men. And only those that are found in Christ will be the gold that remains. Who you really are will be exposed one day. And this is something that you see in a lot of the parables. Think about the parable of the ten virgins in the book of Matthew. You've got ten virgins, five of them uh, have extra uh, reserves of oil. And so when they go out to meet the groom, uh, the groom seems delayed apparently. So five of them, they have to go back in the town because their lamps aren't going to last all night. And when they go back to town, the groom appears and he shuts the door on the ones who had to go back to town. When they come back, they realize, oh no, like because we weren't prepared when Christ actually came, we, the door was shut on us. And I think that's an image where delay through a lot of his parables is a big thing where it's like, your job is not to figure out when Christ is coming back. Your job is to be ready at all times in case he does. And the way that you prepare yourself is by sober-minded pursuit of holiness, right? The, the future reality of Christ's return brings present action. And we're going to see that in verses 11 to 13. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Eschatology, which is the study of the last things, really matters. God does not give us the luxury of abstract theorizing about theology. We're not waxing poetic about concepts that just float in midair. Eternity is at stake. And if God will in fact judge the world with fire, we must ensure that we will come out as gold. We must pursue holiness and godliness. These will manifest as the necessary fruit of our salvation. And herein lies the tension of the Christian life. On the one hand, we wait for our final deliverance. But on the other hand, we diligently prepare and hasten that day by pursuing holiness. Now, Peter doesn't give us insight. This is a strange passage where it's like, can we hasten? Can we actually, through prayer, through our holiness, uh, 
have Christ return sooner than he planned? I don't know if that's the best way to phrase it, but there is something here in which God mysteriously incorporates our prayers so that we bring about the very thing that he promises. Think about it this way. If you need your body to be nourished in order to live, you've got to eat. Eating is the action that brings about the effect that God has ordained, right? And in a similar sense, prayer is an action that God says, I want this thing that I've planned to do to come through the means of prayer. And so we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That's a prayer for God's kingdom to be manifested in the present, to be hastened, to be brought forward. So I don't think it's as though God hears our prayers and he changes the second coming from, you know, a Friday afternoon to a Tuesday morning or something like that. But rather it's him telling his creatures, hey, you praying, you being involved in the work of the kingdom, you seeking holiness, you pursuing the good things of God is mysteriously part of how God is going to bring about this final end. That, that it, in some ways it's going to hasten the day that Christ will, in a qualified sense, return, quote unquote, faster as we, as we entreat him, as we call out to him. And you actually see this ethic in the Psalms where it's like, God, I'm in trouble. I need you to help me today. I need you to help me now. Hasten, quicken, bring your judgment, bring your glory, bring your deliverance in time and space here and now. So I don't think we need to read in a deep philosophical, you know, kind of thing where divine sovereignty and human will. I think we merely need to take this basically at face value and say, we should be praying for the fullness of the kingdom. We should be praying for people to repent before he comes. We should be praying as you see at the end of the book of Revelation, come Lord Jesus. That's a prayer for the hastening of the second coming. And that's what we're commanded to do and something that we should pray for if it comes to mind, which rarely does it come to our mind. We're not thinking about these eternal things. And this is a good corrective that Peter gives to us. God's going to bring about a new heavens and new earth marked by righteousness. Now, if you want to be citizens of that righteous kingdom, you've got to be righteous, not merely to enter in, but that you can enjoy it, right? Righteousness in Christ, to be, to be a righteous person is not only to do good things, but to love what is good. And so through sanctification, through the process by the Holy Spirit of us becoming more and more righteous, God is actually shaping our taste buds so that when he gives us the kingdom, we might enjoy it in fullness. If you hate the idea of worshiping God, then an eternity with him will, will, will seem to you like an eternal misery, right? If you hate God's people, you're not going to want to spend eternity with God's people. Only the righteous can enjoy the righteousness of the kingdom. And if you find joy in wickedness, then you are cultivating a taste for what God hates, what God will throw into the fire, and you will go there with it. And in light of this, Paul gives his final sobering words to the church, verses 14 to 18. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. 
Peter began his letter urging us to make every effort toward godliness, and he ends with the same exhortation, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. All of our good works flow out of the grace of God, but that grace is not pixie dust. Grace sweats, grace works, grace pursues with diligence the goal of holiness. Christ declares us spotless and without blemish and perfect and holy the moment of our conversion. And then he promises by his spirit to make us what he declares us to be. Nobody who is declared righteous will not end up righteous at the end. That is his promise. He who began a good work in us will finish it. And God's apparent delay in returning actually is his kindness to sinners. Counted as as salvation. It's not an opportunity to scoff like the false teachers, but rather to reach out for salvation, to realize that God has given you another day, another breath to repent. And Peter brings in his friend Paul, his co-apostle. These words are in accordance with Paul's teaching. The man who, remember in Galatians, he publicly rebuked Peter, but now they stand forever as brothers and as friends. And Paul exhorted believers in his epistles to live holy lives in light of final judgment. But false teachers have twisted his words as they do the other scriptures. And I love here where Peter basically says, you know, Paul's letters, they're great. Some of them, you know, some parts are hard to understand, right? And, and we can all say amen to that, right? What's going on with Romans 11? How do we understand all this stuff? And I almost wonder if Peter was ever just like, hey, Paul, can you just like, can you explain this to me? Like, I don't really get this, right? So Peter, he's reading Paul's letters and going, I don't get all of it, right? But he does say that also people are twisting Paul's words, twisting his teaching. And Peter's saying, no, no, you're twisting his teaching. I am in accordance with Paul. I agree with Paul. Anyone who says that we're against each other is is distorting the true teaching. But notice that he looks at Paul's letters as scripture. He says that people twist Paul's words as they do the other scriptures, meaning Paul's letters early on, there's this canonical awareness that Paul and Peter know what they're doing. It's not like they're sitting around being like, maybe one day our letters will make it into a canon or a Bible. They recognize that they are in the, in the line of the prophets, that they are writing holy scripture, that they are writing the continuation of the Old Testament. There seems to be an awareness there and that Paul's letters are being collected. They're being passed around and they're afforded a kind of authority, the authority of inspiration, of being spirit-breathed that we see given to the Old Testament from the very mouth of God himself. Peter has no patience for quote-unquote red-letter Christians who say only the sayings of Jesus are the words of God. No, Paul's words are inspired. They're from the mouth of Jesus as well. And with this in mind, Peter warns the church about false teachers taking the word of God and then carrying the church into error. The church will never ultimately falter, but it can wobble. And therefore, believers must take care not only to avoid what is false, but pursue what is true, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's not just growing in knowledge, but growing in practice, actually doing it, actually reading, meditating, praying, and then actually doing what God commands. And the Christ who will come again to judge the living and the dead The Christ who through his resurrection and ascension, who will receive all glory from now until eternity. The Christ who looked into the eyes of Peter in the moment of his greatest failure and said, feed my sheep. That's the Christ who's coming back to rescue, to bring final deliverance. And we're still waiting for that day. You know, and, 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 but the, the, the point is not to, not to try to figure out when that's going to happen, not to lose heart, but to be diligent, to use this time to thank God for his kindness toward sinners that he still gives them a chance to repent, and also to prepare ourselves for when he comes like a thief in the night. 
And I love how we, we see here, Peter, he's doing what, what Jesus told him to do. He's feeding the sheep. Even until this day, his words are resounding through history. He is making good on what Jesus called him to do. And I think at the heart of it, Peter believes the promise of God, the word of God, the word that brought the world into existence through water, that will, that will also bring the new heavens and new earth through fire. And it shows the enduring power of God's promise, the enduring power of his great and precious promises, that the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And that's the promise for us as it was for the first century Christians. And that's what we hold on to. That's why it's so important to try to understand 1 Peter and 2 Peter, to understand the word of God, so that we might be strengthened to endure as we wait and hasten the day of his return.